0: We're going to be turning to Ephesians 4, the first place that we'll read this evening, Ephesians 4 in your Bibles. And I'm um, sure thank you for making available the handouts this evening as well. 156 years ago this month, the Civil War ended here in the United States of America. It was in the spring of 1865 when Robert E. Lee surrendered the last Confederate army to Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse here in Virginia on April 9, 1965. That year, earlier in that year, the Congress passed the 13th Amendment, and then it was ratified in December of that year. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States and provided that, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. This month was a a anniversary of the ending of the Civil War, and regardless of whether your understanding of. American history results in your seeing slavery as the major reason of the Civil War or merely one of many contributing reasons of the Civil War, few would dare to argue that slavery had nothing to do with the Civil War. And, um, and slavery was, is a horrendous blight on the character and the history of, of our country. And slavery has cast its shadow forward. Across the years of our heritage, you know sometimes um, we come to times in in our lives where we begin to see things differently than we had seen things. I know that there are many churches and, and many um, and many Christians who uh, have a, some very strong prejudices against different ethnic groups uh, the the uh, president of the Bible college that Betty and I graduated from pastored a church in Detroit, big church, very large church in Detroit, Michigan, and they never had a black member in the church. If the, when they led blacks to Christ on their soul winning and outreach, they would send them to a black church, would not baptize any black into the membership of that church. Um, that was very common at that era in America. And I can remember sitting over in the warehouse in the early history of, of Community Baptist Church in an email back and forth with a preacher in one of the southern states who was strongly advocating that that blacks should have their own restaurants, their own restrooms, their own churches, and should not be allowed to be a part of churches that are white. And I can remember dialoguing with that individual who argued that because God divided the human family up into groups, the Tower of Babel, that uh, that God intends for them to stay divided. I, I understand that there has been a history of prejudice in Christianity and that there may still be to this day uh, churches and pastors and Christian people that have deep-seated prejudices against people of other ethnic groups. And I also realize that As we go through life, we come to things and situations that open our eyes and and cause us to look at things differently than what we uh, had become accustomed to looking at things. And there are um, things about life that we need to constantly reevaluate. And and the psalmist uh, prayed, search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me. You know, there's, we we're all. None of us have arrived yet. None of us are above and beyond God scrutinizing our hearts and and learning and growing and and sometimes changing things that we used to think or that we used to feel, and and that needs to be an ongoing process in in all of our lives and certainly in America in the turbulent times we've been in in America. Uh, It has caused people to think and to reevaluate and to analyze some of the things they thought or believed or practiced in years gone by. And then, of course, racism is a horrendous problem. The, the, The long shadow of racism continues to cast itself across the American landscape. And there are groups of people in America that hate other groups of people in America Based on some peripheral issue of ethnicity or or what they would might refer to as race and uh, and as Christian people, we always find ourselves in situations where we have to have an opinion we have to have an understanding of, of what God says we, we we need to be able to articulate if there are biblical answers and solutions to problems that are facing uh, our society and and so every once in a while, we, I speak a little bit about this issue I have over the years. And recently, well, over the last year or so, I've, I have become aware of uh, a couple of individuals that, um, that I've been blessed to be able to read about their life and their story. I want to say this evening that the answer to America's racial divide is not more hatred. There are answers and it's not more hatred and bigotry and prejudice. And I see that being lived out in the story of two men. Here's their pictures coming up. These two men uh, share a story across America. They've been on Fox News. They've been on a variety of, of venues. Uh, they're both uh, born-again believers. They are both uh, active in ministry. Uh, one, um, uh, Matt uh, Lockett, who is on your right, uh, the white gentleman, uh, is head of a ministry over in Washington, D.C., and Will Ford, the one on the left, the black individual, is, uh, lives and ministers out of Texas. And these two men share a story of suffering and abuse that reaches back into the pre-Civil War days and cascades forward to the present and ended... In days of healing, Will Ford and Matt Lockett travel America preaching on revival and leading groups of Christians to pray for racial reconciliation in America. And they have a passion to see God work in our nation and bring us back to revival, back to the revivals of bygone days. And uh, and their story is a very interesting story. These two men met at the Lincoln Memorial a number of years ago on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It was a celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, at the location and on the anniversary of the date that he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. Um, The black gentleman, Will Ford, I believe might have been speaking at that event. Matt Lockett did not know Will Ford. Matt Lockett, through a series of circumstances and events, ended up there from the Midwest and attended the event and heard the testimony and the story of Will Ford and talked with him after the rally, the meeting, and both of these men developed a very close friendship and uh, ministry relationship. Eventually, they would travel together and speak together in, in rallies, calling America to prayer for revival and for racial reconciliation. Will Ford would always travel with a with a iron kettle. You can see it in that picture. Let's go back just for a second, Matt. Sorry for the bad steer there. It is there at um, at Matt Lockett, the white gentleman's knees. And the next slide will show you the kettle. Um, Will Ford is holding. I don't know. It's yeah. Um, he's holding the kettle on the left, on the right hand. Thank you. On the right hand side, you may see that the kettle is upside down. He often has it upside down at his uh, where he's speaking. The significance of that kettle is important to Will Ford and Matt Lockett. Uh, the Ford family, 200 years ago cooked in that iron kettle and they also washed their clothes in that idol, uh, that iron kettle and then they would also turn it upside down and put a couple of rocks under the lips of the of the uh, under the, the edge of the lip of the of the kettle so that it was elevated off the ground by a few inches and at night the slaves would meet together in that room and they would lay prostrate on the ground on their on their stomach and they would put their lips to the the opening and they would pray into that kettle. So why in the world would anyone pray into a kettle like that? Because if they got caught praying, they would be beaten, sometimes murdered by their owners. Their own many, not all, not all, but many owners would not allow their slaves to pray. Because they didn't want the slaves praying for freedom. They didn't want their slaves uh, developing a hope that maybe someday they could be free. And so if they were caught praying, they would be beaten. Sometimes they would be beaten to death as an example to the other slaves to not um, disobey the master. And so the iron kettle was where uh, Ford's. Ancestors would pray and they would pray for freedom, but not just freedom for themselves, because as history has passed down the stories, they they really didn't see any hope for freedom in their era, in their generation. They prayed for the freedom of their of their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids. They prayed and they begged God. The reason they did that is because they found that when they prayed into that kettle, it muffled their voices They would have a lookout at the door or window watching to make sure that somebody from the main house didn't come down and catch them praying. And they would pray into the kettle so that their voices would be muffled and they wouldn't be discovered praying. They wouldn't they wouldn't no one would be drawn to them to pray. But those prayers that they prayed into that old iron kettle were heard by God. Just like. Israel, for generations in Egypt, in slavery, begged God and prayed. We learn from the book of Exodus that they prayed and begged God generation after generation. 400 years they were in Egypt. Many of those years in slavery. And they begged God. They pleaded with God to send a deliverer to, to give them freedom and liberty from the oppression and slavery of Egypt. And God heard their prayers and sent them Moses. And they believed, these slaves believed, that maybe someday God would send somebody, God would do something. And those prayers reached the ears of God, just like Israel's prayers reached the ears of God. Now, the many of the, the owners, slave owners, would would allow some some liberty for the slaves to have some role in Christianity. They knew that Christianity made people to be... Um, Harder workers, and uh, and so sometimes they would allow that. I have, I don't uh, have a particular copy, but I have read that some Bibles were published by slaveholders that didn't have the story of the Exodus from Egypt in it. It deleted the book of Exodus uh, because they didn't want their slaves, they wanted their slaves to read the Bible and to, and to be good slaves, but they didn't want their slaves to read the story. Of deliverance from Exodus, and so they they kept their slaves from praying and seeking God and desiring liberty and freedom. Well, that really drew that really captured um, Lockett's attention and his um, Matt Lockett's attention and his imagination, and and he uh, began to dialogue and, and with, with with Will Ford, and and that that launched a friendship that lasted for, went on for ten years, a significant friendship of traveling together and seeking uh, America's praying for revival and racial reconciliation. But then something happened that that shocked them. Matt Lockett's ancestors were farmers in Virginia. Will Ford's ancestors were slaves in Louisiana. And as a result of, of some studies, some ancestral study, and just some happenstance of being in an old bookstore in Virginia and seeing a book, uh, I think it was in Appomattox, seeing a book about the Civil War and, and picking up that book and flipping through it, through some unusual circumstances, it was discovered that, that Will Ford's family had originated in Virginia and migrated to Louisiana. But more than that, that before slavery ended, they had a different last name. Their last name was Lockett. And it was after slavery was made illegal that the, the Lockett slaves in Louisiana discarded the name Lockett it was not unusual for slaves to take the last name of their masters. And so they would discard it, they discarded the their last name Lockett, and they took a name of a friend of theirs, Ford, and that generation of Lockett slaves became Ford's. And Will never knew anything about that until ten years after that he had developed this friendship as the As the friendship unfolded and the story of this old kettle unfolded, they found the records and they found the evidences and the genealogies that Matt Lockett's family had actually owned Will Ford's family in Virginia on the Lockett plantation. And it was it was Will Ford's ancestors that prayed into that kettle Praying for freedom from Matt Lockett's family. Praying that their children would be able to have liberty from Matt Lockett's ancestors that owned them. When these two men found that out, they faced a struggle. Matt Lockett faced the guilt of realizing that his ancestors had owned The ancestors of a man who had become his best friend in ministry. Will Ford, on the other hand, had been preaching and praying for racial reconciliation across America. But all of a sudden, there's a a, a real face of a real person that had owned his family. That he had to struggle with whether he could have racial reconciliation with the man whose ancestors had beaten his family. They had run across one story of where one of Lockett's ancestors had taken one of Ford's ancestors back when he was a Lockett as a slave on the Lockett plantation. And this particular young slave man had gone fishing without permission from the master. And the master decided to make him an object lesson for the other slaves. So the master pickled his back. Which means they they strapped him to a large tree, hands and legs around the tree, and they beat his back until the flesh was in ribbons. And then they laid him down from the tree and they poured pork brine into the wounds of his back. After a few weeks of his back healing up from the wounds, they would repeat the process and they would... They would beat his back until it was raw, and they would pour pork brine into his back. They called it pickling the back. They did that until he died. And Will Ford had to face the reality that his dear friend's ancestors had murdered one of his ancestors mercilessly. And he had to struggle with the feelings of a real person and what that real person had done to his real people, and so we had two men: one suffering with guilt, one suffering with feelings of uh, of anger, of, of having a difficult time with what had happened in those uh, in those years. Well, those two friends ended up remaining as as good friends, and Matt. Lockett was able to be forgiven and, and the, the past reconciled. And he and Will Ford continue to this day to be dear friends and to travel and preach with that same iron kettle where Will Ford's slave ancestors prayed for freedom from Matt Lockett's slave ancestors. Instead of ripping them apart, the revelation of their past produced a powerful story of the possibility of racial reconciliation inside Christianity when people are believers in Jesus Christ and and submit to the truth of the word of God. But, but something else was discovered in the process. On the next slide, you'll see. I don't know if you'll be able to make uh, much of it, but that's a a uh, historic marker here in Virginia. The last battle of the Civil War was fought in the Lockett Plantation front yard, just a few miles from Appomattox. The loss, the Confederate loss at that battle at the Lockett Farmhouse precipitated Lee's surrender at the Appomattox Courthouse three days later. So here are these two men. Bound together by ancestry, bound together by history, lives interwoven. Now, both seeking racial reconciliation in a country that still struggles with the problems of of race. Now, there, there are three, you saw in your little worksheet that was given out, three questions I just want to throw out on the table in our last few moments The first question, and all of these have to do with where we are as individuals. Where am I in these questions? Where am I personally? Every one of us have a different heritage, a different background. You may have been raised in a racist family. You may have been raised with deep prejudices in your family. You may have been raised in a family that never had any prejudice. We're all individuals. And the question is, where am I? In these questions. The first one is empathy or indifference. Where am I in this matter of empathy or indifference? Empathy. Meaning caring for what someone went through. Could Will Lockett empathize with Will Ford's knowledge of the murder of his ancestors and the beating of his ancestors and the horrible treatment his ancestors received from the Lockett family. Could Matt Lockett empathize with that? Could he could he enter into Will Ford's pain? Could he feel for him? Or is he indifferent? You know, some people say, hey, look. Those of you who are Black. You weren't there during slavery. I wasn't there during slavery. Neither of us were directly impacted by slavery. Get over it and let's just get on with life. With no empathy for the heritage of that person or what their ancestors may have gone through. My question is, do I care about other people's hurts? Because it didn't end with the ending of slavery. It continued on long beyond slavery, the treatment of blacks, even after they were free, the treatment of blacks. The I just I just watched I I read um, a, a an article in the critical race theory that mentioned a a um, true a, a movie that was made from a true story of a Harvard a black. Harvard, a young black Harvard lawyer that graduated some 30-some years ago from Harvard and went to Alabama with the burden of his heart not to become rich and famous, even though he had a Harvard Law degree, but to go to go to Alabama and give his life to help black men that are incarcerated without evidence. And, and I watched that. It's not a, a movie I would necessarily recognize recommend for families. It's got some very salty language in it. I normally don't watch anything like that. I never do for entertainment purposes. I watch this for documentary uh, um, information about I wanted to better understand what and that's in my lifetime. That's what's happened in my lifetime in the last since since we started Community Baptist Church, this young Harvard lawyer and um, name of Just Mercy. And what a powerful uh, opening up of the eyes of what has happened in my lifetime. My question is, do I care? Or am I indifferent? I'm not affected. It doesn't enter into my life. What do I care what happens down in Alabama? Am I indifferent or do I care? Can I hear the cries and prayers of generations of black people lying prostrate on the ground, praying into the edge of an old iron kettle, begging God for freedom and deliverance from the atrocious treatment that they had and were receiving? You see, after long after slavery was illegal in America, the problem of prejudice continued. And when it was no longer legal to own a slave, the campaign to remove blacks, to get rid of blacks, to uh, to belittle blacks, the torture of that was picked up by the scientific community under the name of evolution. The eugenics society that believed that that there are certain races of people that are subhuman and really don't have the 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 right to live or the right to have a dignity in their life. The eugenics organi- eugenics societies began in order to be able to identify those groups of people who genetically are inferior to other groups of people so that they could politically develop systems that would discourage the reproduction of those people or kill those people so that we could rid our country of genetic material that will produce inferior families kind of one of the things that were behind it was the idea that we have a limited food supply and if we allow these imbeciles, that was one of the words they used, or these morons, that was another word they used, if we allow them to reproduce, they will consume the food supply and the superior races, the superior genetic existence will will not be able to reproduce as quickly and therefore our entire human race will go downhill if we allow these imbeciles and morons to reproduce. And so eugenic society... Do you realize that the, the the last law in, I think it was North Carolina, that forbid forced sterilization... Of black women or poor women, because it was believed at that time, science believed that poverty is genetically passed from parent to child, just like any genetic characteristic. They thought scientifically they believed that poverty was a part of our genetic makeup. And so the sterilization of white, poor women, all black women. The sterilization of people that are inferior, that we don't want to allow to reproduce, so they take the space and the food away from we Caucasians that are the superior race. The last law that forbid that North Carolina was just stricken from the records in 2003. I mean, this, this, this eugenics was all in the 1900s. And when you go back and study the, the eugenics Boards and what they said and what they taught and who was behind it, where the money came from. You ever heard of Procter & Gamble? The gamble of Procter & Gamble was a big supporter, money source for destroying the black people. The eugenics mechanism was used to keep blacks from being born and then to deal with the presence of blacks after they're born. One of the more heart-wrenching situations was a man by the name of Otabinga. You ever heard of Otabinga? Otabinga died in 1916. Otabinga was 4 foot 11 inches tall, he was captured in Africa and brought to America to be put on display at the St. Louis Exposition. And after the St. Louis Exposition, he spent a number of years in the Bronx Zoo. Over 40,000 people came to stare at Oda Binga in a cage with some monkeys in one weekend at the Bronx Zoo in the early 1900s. It was believed that he was a missing link. He was an inferior human being with no rights for dignity. He was just an ape. Just a little bit beyond an ape. Maybe a little bit closer to we Caucasians than an ape. But he was still an animal. And he was... Locked up as when 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 the, some objected to it, it was said that this is a education project to teach America about evolution, to give Americans the opportunity to see a real live missing link that was captured in Africa and brought so that we could see the reality of evolution. Ota Binga committed suicide at 33 years of age in depression from how he'd been treated and his inability to get back to Africa. He's buried in Lynchburg, Virginia. Oda is perhaps the best known black individual who was so horribly treated by whites. In this whole eugenics thing, this whole genetic thing that says there are some human beings that are inferior, that don't have a right to live, that don't have a right to dignity. And that have been treated horribly here in America. Up until not very long ago, and some would argue in some places still being treated horribly. Here's a second question. The second question comes from the passages of Scripture. In fact, let me the first question. Here's the Bible answer to that. Do I care? Do I care? I mean, I'm not impacted by any of that. And I read in Ephesians chapter 4 verse number 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that may minister grace to the hearers and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also loved us and have given Himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savour. I mean that's that's the Bible answer. They weren't told to be kind to the Jews. They weren't told to be kind to any particular ethnic group. They were told to love, to be kind, to be considerate, to care about people. And that really is the Bible answer to the racism question. It's not more hatred. It's not more anger. It's not inflaming people. It's learning how to love. To be kind. To be forgiving and caring. Regardless of the characteristics of that individual. Do I care? Or am I indifferent to the plight of others? Here's the second question. Is it influence or responsibility? Let me just summarize it quickly. It deserves an entire lesson or a study. Exodus 20 and Ezekiel 18 on face value appear to be contradictory unless one realizes that Exodus 20 is talking about influence. Ezekiel 18 is talking about accountability and responsibility. In Exodus 20, moms and dads have got to be careful because they influence their children as generation one, their grandchildren as generation two, their great-grandchildren, that's generation three, and their great-great-grandchildren, that's generation four. The, the influence in a family, this was particularly true when families didn't live all over across America when they lived. In close proximity to one another and and the involvement in their lives, the aunts, the uncles, the grandparents, the multi-generations, there was a powerful impact. There was a powerful influence. And God says, you be careful how you live because your influence will influence your children to the third and fourth generation. And they may end up doing the same thing you do. In fact, they're likely... To end up doing the same thing you do. So be very careful how you live. But Ezekiel 18 takes that that concept that it's more than influence. It's accountability. My children are guilty for the sins I commit. And God will punish my children for the things that I do. If I eat sour grapes, they're going to pucker up. Because their teeth are set on edge. And God said, don't say that anymore. Quoted by both by, by, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Don't say that anymore. That's not true. And then the rest of the, of the 18th chapter of Ezekiel. I wish we had time to go through it another time. The rest of the chapter, God lays out different case scenarios. What if you have a righteous man that has a rebellious son? Will Will God be nice to the rebellious son because of the righteous dad? How about if you have a rebellious dad, but his kids see the end result of the judgment of God in the life of their parents and they make better choices and they live righteous lives? Will God still punish them because the parents? He laid out scenarios and he argued that every individual is accountable to God for themselves. And God will never punish one individual for what a different individual does. Everyone is responsible for their own actions. And they're accountable to God for their own actions. And then Ezekiel 18 gives the solution, and it's forgiveness. It's a powerful chapter. Read it sometime. You'll enjoy it if you haven't read it in a long time. Today's wrong does not counsel out yesterday's wrong. A riot in Portland does not fix anything that happened a hundred years ago. Responsibility and accountability is an individual situation. And regardless of what happened in the past, I am only accountable to God for what I do. And that's the biblical answer. All these things about reparations. We need to take all the money away from the whites and give it to the blacks because the whites took advantage of the blacks in the past and therefore they don't have the right to the stuff they've got. And that's social justice, as is being taught in Loudoun County schools under the critical race theory that social justice is for the government to change its political stance, to take away the power from the whites and give it to the blacks because they are a minority group that were oppressed. And that's the way you you get justice. It's equity. It's not equal treatment, and no, no, that doesn't fix anything. If I didn't do something wrong, I shouldn't pay for that wrong. I'm accountable for what I do, and my ancestors are accountable for what they did, and they'll give an account to God one day for what they did. But I can't be accountable for what my ancestors did unless, under their influence, I make the decision to do the same thing they did. Then it becomes my responsibility, and then I'm accountable to God for what they did. And then here's the, here's the third question. Yesterday or today? Yesterday or today? What a lot of people don't realize is abortion and the treatment of the blacks are the same thing. The same evolutionary philosophy that promoted eugenics and the murder and the destruction of blacks sought for the abortion of another group of people that the elites deemed to be unworthy of life. It's not the subhuman blacks this time. It's the pre human unborns this time. But it's the same group. You study back history, the biggest provo- uh, abortion provider is what? Planned Parenthood. It was started by Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was a huge eugenist, and she was the one that was trying to sterilize black women, keep them from conceiving children so they wouldn't mess up our country by filling our country with blacks. And and the the issue of slavery, the issue of the treatment of the blacks, and the issue of abortion are one and the same issue. They're just two different groups of human beings that the elites deem to be undeserving of life and dignity. And the same individuals that promoted one promoted the other in history. And it all comes from an evolutionary philosophy of life that we've evolved and some of us are more worthy than others are worthy. And so the, the solution, you know, the, the question is, you know, is if, if I'm against slavery, anyone who's against slavery ought to be as adamant about being against abortion. We, Ryan, Pastor Ryan and I talked about this, and, and he shared some things with me, some insights that, that he had, some perspectives that he had, that I hadn't really considered. And then I was reading a a, a a book on the development of these two guys' lives, Matt and and uh, uh, and Will, and turns out that their campaign is not merely a campaign for racial reconciliation. Their campaign is racial reconciliation and the destruction of Roe uh, Ro v.ersus Wade, the destruction, the the uh, reversing of abortions in America. Because of the same issue, it's the elites identifying a people group that don't have the right to live, or the right to dignity in their life, and then giving my life to be able to, to destroy that people group. Am I today as adamant against abortion as I think people should have been adamant against slavery? if I'm not as adamant against abortion as I wish people were adamant against slavery 200 years ago, then I'm not thinking clearly yesterday or today. Let me end by saying that a lot of you know, you've heard me in, mention in bygone days, perhaps, that I am a descendant of an African man. Our family genealogy continues to be researched. I recently um, ordered a DNA kit. I have a cousin that, is, that asked me if I would do a, a paternal DNA test. They're trying to clarify some things in the L-stalk genealogy as to whether or not American Indian uh, is also in our genetics. And so I, I'm waiting for the kit to arrive to be able to do the DNA test to help with the family research of the L-stalk genealogy. Here, is, here are the generations of L-stalks. Back to the first L-stalk in America. I am the... 1, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight. I am the ninth. I am the ninth generation of L-stalks in America. The first generation from the late 1600s or early 1700s was an African man that his name has never as yet to be discovered. But it's believed that he was from Mali... Or Nigeria, there's Nigerian traces in, my, in the Elstog paternal, Elstog genetic string. There is traces of Mali, Nigeria, and southern Bantu people. And so the first Elstock in America was a black man in the early 1700s. He had a son, the first Elstog born in America was Michael Elstock back when the spelling was different. He had a son by the name of Absalom Elstock Sr., who had a son by the name of Absalom Elstock Jr., who had a son by the name of Samuel Elstock, who had a son by the name of Estridge, who bore my grandfather Parley, who bore my dad, Lloyd, who bore me. I'm the ninth generation from a fully 100 percent black man from Africa. Something I didn't know until just this last week is that my grandfather, Parley, was the first generation of ale to be listed in the census as white during his entire life. Every generation from Estridge back on some senses were white, some senses they were free Negro, some senses they were mulatto. But the first L. who was listed as a white man in every census during his life, was my granddad. That's not very far removed. The first L. were called, were listed in census documents as free Negroes, which means they they were pre-slavery. They weren't slaves. They were free. They were. In Dentured servants, but they weren't, slavery wasn't, uh, wasn't around yet. It wasn't a part of, of all blacks' existence. I have a rich heritage. A blending of Africa and Europe and maybe even some American Indian. They're still trying to figure it out. I have a rich heritage. That might be, that might contribute to my excellent immune system. Because when you narrow down the gene pool, you've got problems. You want to be healthy, choose your parents well. The more diverse a gene pool, the less possibility of harmful mutations that deteriorate health. And maybe, just maybe, the reason I hardly ever get sick never had a flu. I don't think I've had a vaccine of any kind since I was a kid. Maybe it's because of the richness of my heritage. Drawing from gene pools around the world. And then for the sake of my kids, I chose a wife from Canada to throw in some royalty there. She's in the nursery, so she can't hear me. But I remind us that we all have rich genetic heritage. Because as Professor Samuel Richards wrote, who teaches a course in race and ethnic relations at Penn State University, he wrote that we're all black. That genetically, all humanity goes back to a black man and a black woman. And then with tongue-in-cheek, he encouraged people. That the next time the census bureau sends somebody to your door and they ask you of your race, tell them you're black. No matter what shade of pale you might be. We are all black according to more recent genetic research. Which means Adam and Eve were black. And over the years we've lost some of the Darkness of our skin tone gradually in different parts of the world. But we all have a rich heritage. And that rich heritage is God's creation of who we are as people. God's answer to racism is love people. Care about people. Realize that what we do today cannot fix what was done a hundred years ago. Admit what happened. It was wrong. It was horrible. Whites in America were viciously sinful in the way they treated blacks throughout American history. Admit it. Own up to it. You're not accountable for it. And nothing can be done to you because of it. But care about people. Admit what happened. Listen to the person who's hurting. Let them know you care about the, the pain in their hearts. But teach them that they can't hold you accountable for what somebody else did a hundred years ago. And then be as against abortion as you think our forefathers should have been against slavery in their day because they are part and parcel the same issue every human being is a creation the image of God and has dignity and value and is loved by God and we need to treat each of them as the brothers and sisters they are to us in the human race